I really, really enjoy meeting with you every single Sunday to sing and pray together and to enjoy the fellowship that the Lord has given us together. It is really, really a highlight of my entire week when we get to do this together. Now we come to study God's word together and we've been working our way through this wonderful book of First Thessalonians and what a great encouragement this is to our hearts uh, to make our way through this book and to, to see the riches of truth that we find in it. This is a fascinating passage, a really convicting section of scripture for me personally and uh, I pray that it has a transforming effect in my own heart. So I was thinking about this text throughout the week. It reminded me of, of a, a reality that we're all experiencing right now with the, the dawning and the use of the internet. That has really had a dramatic effect on how we evaluate churches. You know that? I mean, it used to be, I, I can remember when I first started out in ministry, we would record the sermons on a cassette tape. You laugh, but I, I used to have to do that myself. I would lead the music, and then I would preach, and to, to record it, I would have to stop and walk over to the recorder and push the record button and then come preach. And, and we had a really wonderful recorder because we only had 30 minutes per side on the... the and so it would naturally flip over. I wouldn't have to turn it over, so it'd flip because I, I would go more than 30 minutes most of the time. And, and so this is just a little country church, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but, but we would make those available to people and they'd give them out. And that's how people would learn a little bit about our church and what we would do. But then the internet came. We started recording. We start putting those online. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, we had this thing called the pandemic that hit. And every single church in the country is not just recording sermons and we're live streaming the whole service now. And what the internet has done is really been helpful to a lot of people as they begin to evaluate local churches. I mean, they get to see, they get to look online. It's kind of like a try before you buy thing. You get to see the service, you get to hear the sermon, you get to see what goes on maybe live and in color. And, and like ours, our live stream, it's like the, the best audio you've ever heard. Why are you laughing like that? I mean, we've sunk thousands into it, even though it requires tens of thousands. So uh, there's a lot of good there. In fact, I, I've, I'm hearing that from a number of people is that you, you've come here because you, you first looked at it online, you've evaluated, you know what's coming, and so then you come in to see if it's real. Because we all know there's more to a church than what shows up on the live stream, Right? There's more to church life than just what you hear on the internet. <laughs> I think that's true too. But one of the downsides to evaluating churches that I've also found is the non-stop public accusation. Have you noticed that too? Made against churches on a limited evaluation of the totality of a church's actual life or even a church leader's actual life. How can you know if a church or its shepherds who lead that church are spiritually legitimate? 
What do you know personally about them? What's been your personal interaction with them? Can you get to know them in such a way that you can know how they present the word, what motivates their approach to ministry? Can you get close enough to see their lifestyle that flows from their ministry and even the way they seem to apply the word to the life of the church? Can you get close enough to see that? You'll never be able to assess any of that through the internet or a live stream. You'll have to engage the congregation. You'll have to engage leaders personally. You're going to have to watch them over time to see what really does drive them. When Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, accusations were being made against him and there was no internet. But wild accusations being made against Paul, against Christianity, there was all kinds of cultural pressure that's causing people in the community to question whether or not Christianity, which was fairly newfound in this community, was really legitimate or not. Is this guy, Paul, who came in here and began to preach the the Bible and to teach about the gospel of Jesus, is he real? Is this real spirituality? Is this real, tangible kinds of belief that would actually transform life? I think because of all these cultural pressures that were being applied to the Thessalonian Christians, I mean, again, we've said this before, but this would be a church where you would show up on on the Lord's Day and there would be some people who weren't there from the previous week and it's not because they were on vacation, it's because they were martyred. That would make you start wondering, okay, is this worth it? Is it really worth it to stay connected to this group of people and believe what they're teaching? And I think that's why he writes chapter 2. It's somewhat defensive. He's making a defense of the legitimacy of his ministry and thus the ministry that these people have believed. Is this real? And he tells them, you know it is. He says it over and over, as you know, verse 1... Just as you know, you yourselves know. Verse 2, we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi as you know. This is not news to you. Verse 5, we never came with flattering speech as you know. Verse 9, you recall. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, just as you know. This isn't something they got from hearsay. They knew about his life and his ministry and what he's investing in the people because they were a part of him and he was a part of them. And it showed the spiritual legitimacy of what he was investing. So as we study chapter 2, we said this and began it last week, that we could actually arrange the first 12 verses around four different elements to consider when evaluating the spiritual legitimacy and even the spiritual effectiveness of a gospel church. How do you evaluate the spiritual legitimacy of a church? What criteria are you using? Is it just going to be from internet hearsay? Just from what you can evaluate from a distance? Not, not these criteria. These criteria require you to personally know For you to get close enough to know, which is going to require some time and intentionality and effort on all of our part. So what are these criteria? I'm just going to throw these up there so that you see all of them. We're working through them week by week. 
verses 1 to 4, we considered last Lord's Day, evaluate the presentation of those who deliver God's word. How's the word presented? How's it given? What, what atmosphere is it not just, uh, it's not just spoken, but what atmosphere is it actually brought to us in? And we, we looked at that in detail last week. Verses 5 through 8, you need to evaluate the motivations of those who preach God's word. Verses 9 to 10, evaluate the lifestyle of those who teach God's word. And verses 11 to 12, evaluate the application from those who bring God's word. So each one of these, week after week, we're going to unpack together. So this morning, we're going to focus on the second element to consider in evaluating the spiritual legitimacy of a ministry and its ministers. And that's this public side of ministry. Motivations. Motivations. Evaluate the motivations of those who preach God's word. The public side of ministry is often the easiest part of ministry to evaluate. It's fairly easy for a preacher to say words of biblical substance, speak with biblical conviction, even indicate that he thinks that he's accountable to God. He can be biblically accurate. Perhaps he can be morally pure and personally honest and spiritually accountable. That's the public side of it. You can see that. But does he mean it? Does he mean it? Does he do that as as a facade to get you to keep coming? Does he simply know the demographic of the community and say, this is how I know I can keep you coming. I know what you like. I know what you want. And that's what I'm going to give you in such a way that you'll keep coming. Does he really mean it, though? The other side of that is, how in the world can you actually know the motivations of anybody? How are you going to know the motivations of any person? I mean, even the Apostle Paul, who wrote this text that we're going to study today, that's all about motivations, said this to the Corinthian church who was evaluating him. Listen, just listen to it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul made this unique statement. He said, let a man regard us, and he's talking about him and the others who teach the Bible, the apostles of the church and leaders like Apollos who were teaching in the church in Corinth. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You want to evaluate us? See us that way. We're just servants. We're just stewards. We're not personalities, we're not celebrities, we're just stewards, servants. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So what's the primary evaluation point? Faithfulness. Is the steward faithful? Is the servant faithful to the charge? And then he, Paul said this, but to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. What? Now, he didn't say I don't examine myself at all. He said it's a small thing. It's not the biggest evaluation that's out there for me. I don't live really for your evaluation. I'm not here just to see that you keep showing up week after week. That's a small evaluation. Maybe there's some stock you would put in it, but it's not everything. He says... I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Now that's where it gets challenging. 
Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. What is Paul saying to the Corinthian church? It's a small thing for you to evaluate my motivations. In fact, if you question my motivations, just wait, because the Lord's going to come and you're, we're all going to see what motivated me. And yet, when you go to a passage like 1 Thessalonians 2, he's talking about what motivates his heart. And he's doing it in such a way that you, the church, know what motivates my heart. And that shows the spiritual legitimacy of a church. <clears throat> so which is it, Paul? Are you just having a bad day in Corinth? You can't evaluate me? Better day in Thessalonica? Go ahead and evaluate me. No, he, he knows ultimately the Lord is the one who knows my heart. And I live as if I live in front of God. I serve, I preach, I teach, I minister, I give myself to you as if I know that God is going to be the one who evaluates me. And he's going to put that on display for everyone to see eventually. So if you're not satisfied, just keep, keep waiting. And yet at the same time, he says, I want you to get to know me. This is what he says in Thessalonica. Get to know me so well that you see what drives me. Stick around long enough that you can see what actually pushes me to do what I do and why I do it. You can't ultimately know a person's heart. You're never going to be able to do that. You will be disappointed at times. But live with leaders long enough and you'll begin to see what actually tends to drive them. It starts to become more and more clear. Now, some are very obvious, some are more subtle, Live with them long enough, engage with them long enough, and you'll begin to see it. So the verses that we're looking at this morning in verses 5 to 8 of 1 Thessalonians 2 concentrate on motivations. The motivations that drove Paul to preach and live as he did. So what kind of motivations are we to assess that would show that a ministry is legitimate? Well, that's what we're going to see in these verses. Three different motivations that he highlights. He highlights three motivations that speak to the spiritual legitimacy of his ministry or to the ministry of any local church. This is what you should look at. When you're talking about motivations, what's driving them, ask these questions. Look at these motives. These assessments should be made. Three that we'll look at. First, does a ministry pursue self-promotion? Let's start there. Does a ministry, or you could say this about an elder, you could say that about a deacon, you could say that about a Sunday school teacher. Look at the lay leaders of our church. We have lots of lay leaders in our church who are leading classes and ministries. Are they in this for self-promotion? You say, well, how, how would you know that? Well, you, you've got to watch them and you've got to listen to them and you pay very close attention Well, to what would you pay attention to know if they're all into self-promotion? Paul unpacks that in verses 5 and 6. Are these leaders those who crave promotion? Now, at first glance, you might think that self-promotion is not really a motivation. It's just a public act. But I think you're going to see very clearly here Long before self-promotion takes the stage, self-promotion is actually staged in the inner man. 
A heart that craves promotion will always precede a life that basks in it. So what demonstrates a spiritually illegitimate approach to ministry through self-promotion? Well, consider this. First, we would look at a ministry that's given through verbal flattery. A ministry defined by verbal flattery. Paul says in verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. You always know a flatterer, don't you? It's hard to define it at times, but you know it when you've been exposed to it. Or you've been smeared with it. You've got that syrupy stuff all over you. Flattery. Now, actually, this phrase, we never came with flattering speech, as you know, is really a further explanation of what he began in verse 1. What does spiritual substance consist of? He said, I didn't come and give you an empty ministry. It actually has a lot of spiritual substance to it. And one of the ways you know that is that I didn't come to you just talking words of flattery to you. It's also a further expansion of what we looked at last week in verse 4, why it is that God had entrusted the gospel to Paul, how he serves not people but God and a God who is constantly examining our hearts and and you know that because we came not with flattering words but words of substance, words that God is going to evaluate. What particularly is flattering speech? Well, it's words that are given from the motivation of wanting to flatter someone. Flattering speech, that's affirming words with an alternative intention. They're affirming words. They tell you what you want to hear, but the intention behind it is something alternative in the ancient world, it was common among the professional philosophers. The, we could look at them as maybe the, the politicians, the media of the ancient world. This was common. They would go into the open marketplace and they would begin to teach. And as they engaged with people, they would say what you wanted to hear in order that you would follow them, pay for them, help them to make a living, expand their income, their fame, their fortune. Aristotle claims that the person, the flatterer, the person whose goal is to make people happy in order to profit in money or goods which can be bought with money is the flatterer. Another in the ancient world, Plutarch, indicates that the flatterer is one who promotes a pretend friendship. And it's a pretend friendship because he, Plutarch, would contrast this term of flattery with a term that Paul has already used back in verse 2 of a word that means to speak boldly. Plutarch would say true friendship contains relationship that speaks plainly and boldly. False friendship is filled with flattery. No true friend is a flatterer. One commentator quoted the ancient Eupolis, who gives voice to the flatterer's intention, saying, And when I catch sight of a man who is rich and thick, I at once get my hooks into him. If this money bags happens to say anything, I praise him vehemently and express my amazement, pretending to find delight in his words. 
modern media and politics, you know how they're successful, don't you? If you listen careful to the modern media and political pundits, they'll, they'll let you know a little bit about their tricks every now and then. They study demographics so well. I heard, I heard a former um, leader of the, the Republican National Convention say this. He says, we, we study these demographics so well. We know, based on where you live, we know what you like to eat. We know what snacks you like. We know what beer you drink, even though you say you don't drink it. We know where you go to church. We know what you believe. We know what makes you tick. So every piece of mail that we send is sent to you to give you exactly that, what you want. Media does that too. You think when you turn on the news and you're just getting journalism? <laughs> no, you're not. In fact, one, one reporter was caught on film. I remember seeing it from a cell phone coverage when he had an altercation with a few people at a bar and he described himself, he he led a very prominent news program on a very prominent station and he referred to himself simply as a political actor. Why? Because the news media actually knows what you want to hear based on where you live. They know everything about you and so they craft even the news reports that you listen to and you hear based on what they know will fuel your fires, make you angry, make you happy, and it works. They know. They have a demographic. They have a market. Every commercial you watch is tailored to who they know is watching. They're flattering. Why? They're not in this so that you know the truth. They're not in this so that you know what's really going on. They're in this so they can make money. And if they can keep you coming, they make money. They know what they're doing. So do churches. You know that? Churches have access to that same thing. Churches have access to it. I I just received a report on the demographics of our area. Send it to our staff so that we can tailor everything so that you will keep coming back. (laughs) <laughs> I did get that information. It's really fascinating. I mean, they, they've really done. We can, even, we can even bring that down to certain cross streets and find a people in a certain cross section of Lee Summit. Or we can widen it out and we can catch all the demographics of the people who are coming to our church and we can know all kinds of things about you. And it is commonplace today. It is commonplace to examine that and try to craft ministry around what will cater to the desires of the surrounding area. I mean, that, that is just a modern approach to speaking words of flattery, isn't it? It's the very opposite of what Paul did when he did go to Corinth. And, and I think we could say the same thing when he went to Thessalonica. When he was in Corinth, he made this statement in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, because I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So if you didn't want Jesus and you didn't want the crucified Jesus, that's all I wanted. 
That's all I wanted to do was give you Christ, the crucified Christ. And he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. I mean, what would the marketing data of first century Corinth tell you they would want? It's probably not weakness, fear, and trembling. It's probably not a crucified Lord. The focus of our ministry simply means, do you, do you know what this book says? Do you know why it says that? Do you, are you motivated? Are you encouraged? Are you convicted to do what this book says? Under this Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified, whom God raised from the dead, who died in your place? Is that what really drives your life? Is that what you're interested in? Because we have no other interest than to see you follow the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. That's it. That's it. We focus all of our attention on understanding God as revealed in the word. There's no words that we have to try to ingratiate ourselves beyond that to ourselves. We, we, We don't need that. Flattering words, all that does is breed self-promotion. That's all it does. He goes to a second mark of self-promotion you need to evaluate, and that is ministry for personal fortune. Ministry for personal fortune. We didn't come with flattering speech, as you know, nor, he says, with a pretext for greed. A pretext is like a mask, A mask that covers up what's really behind it. And what's really behind the mask is greed. He said, we didn't come with a mask that was hiding a greedy heart and a greedy intention. A facade that supports the greed that the ministry doesn't want anyone else to see initially. Now the word for greed here is simply the general word for coveting. It's the passion to have what you don't have, what you don't have enough of. And we all know that coveting is is not merely a desire and a craving for money and wealth. It can be more than that. Money and wealth is just a certain sign of greed. It could be a lust for praise, personal support, public affirmation, friendship, loyalty. And and listen, I've, I've been in ministry long enough to know there's a lot of things going on in my heart that I'm tempted with, that would make me feel good if I pursued, if I received, that I crave, that I don't have, that I think I need. And and I can try to lay the groundwork so that people will give that to me because I want it and lust for it. And you've seen this kind of thing. It can, it can manifest itself in everything from evangelists who are telling you why they need the private jet and you need to pay for it. Or the suburban pastor who simply won't teach through the Bible because he's concerned he can't keep the crowd. And he's got to have the crowd. The crowd, he's got to have the affirmation. He's got to have some kind of, of, of buildup. Or, or maybe it's simply the farm town pastor. And he's not going to confront these people who are in his church who've been living in sin and they've been there for generations. Their family's been there for generations. He's not going to say anything about what they've been doing all this time 
in contrary to God's word because he's got to have a job. He lusts to make a living. It's the kind of facade of ministry that hides the heart that wants some kind of personal benefit from it. Listen carefully to all of us who are talking publicly at a church. All of us. How much do you hear them talking about money? How big of a theme is that? Always need money. Hey, we can't have this facility if you don't, we don't have money. All these people coming, we got to build more, build bigger, etc. So we, we need you to, and, and it becomes constant about money. It's almost agreed to say, we're going we're gonna to put this on ministry, but we really have to have your money. Be careful. In the scripture, greed is one of the primary motivations behind almost every false teacher. Did you know that? 1 Timothy 6.5 indicates that false teachers suppose that godliness is a means to gain. 2 Peter 2.3 talks of false teachers. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Those could be words that are well said but falsely represent God. Those could be words that may accurately represent God but are said with a pretense for some kind of self-promotion and not soul loyalty to Christ. But if greed is masked in ministry, if greed is hidden in the recesses of the heart that holds up a head that looks like it wears a halo, how would we ever know that? How are you going to know if it's greed that makes me stand up here every week? How are you going to actually know Well, you don't. You don't. You might be able to evaluate words and over time to see if those words are just flattering words. But can you actually know what's in my heart? You can can try to evaluate me by everyone else, but it won't necessarily show if it's greed or not. And the Apostle Paul knows that. That's why he says, we didn't come with flattering speech as you know because you could evaluate that nor with a pretext for greed. And what's his next statement? What's his next statement? God is witness. God is witness. God knows. God knows that I'm not here for greed. He does. You might be able to assess it over time if the leader is greedy, but you'll probably assess that over time by finding out whether or not the leader actually fears God. If he really thinks that in the deep recesses of his conscience that every word that he says and everything that he does is actually accountable to God and that drives him to do what he does. God's evaluation, that's what motivated Paul's authenticity in ministry. I really do believe that the only reason that someone's going to kill their greed and serve in sincerity is because they know that God knows. And their fear of God outweighs the lusts of their soul. And over time, you're going to hear that. Over time, you're going to see that. Why, why don't we do this or that? Why don't we change this or that? What's compelling us to do what we're doing? Is it really an evaluation? Has God said? Does God want? What does God say? We stand, stand accountable to him. But if there's ministry for personal fortune, gain, 
wealth, prominence, it won't be an accountability to God. It's the third element that he brings out in verse 6 of a ministry of self-promotion we need to evaluate, and that is ministry for public fame. comes along with it. Flattery has to do with fame. Wealth can have to do with fame. But verse 6 really highlights it. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. When Paul arrived, he did not make it a point to get the latest technology in billboards to put his face on it. He wasn't announcing all of the locations and places where he, the great Apostle Paul, will next be speaking. Come and hear. When he preached, it was not a show to highlight him. It was not a show to show his spiritual capabilities and knowledge. He didn't preach in order to gain public honor or personal respect. He did not preach to gain or keep a crowd. He wasn't looking for supporters or affirmation, a fan club, or personal loyalty from anyone. And he said, I didn't want that from you. I'm not just trying to get the Christian culture to think highly of me. I'm not just preaching in order to keep you tied to me. And what's really challenging is I think he means by this, he didn't, he didn't take rejection of his preaching ministry personally. There's a subtle line there. But when people rejected what he said, as long as what he said was honest before the Lord, if they rejected that, he didn't say, I'm really discouraged, I'm depressed, these people hate me. These people, they they do not like me. He understood what that was. If his words were honestly that that was coming from the scriptures, he understood that was not a rejection of him. That was a rejection of the Lord. That's the human heart. God will use that to hold them accountable eventually. It's not about me and my personality. He didn't live his life. He didn't show himself. He didn't do all that he did in ministry just so the crowd would keep coming to him and he didn't just want it from them he said I didn't want it from others also I take that to mean those outside the church I mean there's a way to do ministry where you start appealing to everyone outside the culture let's go to the political leaders let's get on their good side let's do what we can to get them to affirm us to like us so we have their favor And that can be good. There can be good ministry to political leaders and you're praying for them. You're trying to get to know them. You want to ingratiate yourself to them in good ways to try to gain a platform to share the gospel. There can be good in that. But what happens when the public policy crosses and stands contrary to biblical truth and you've been spending all of this time trying to get on the good side of political leaders? What's going to happen? Who's going to give? I don't think Paul went to Philippi trying to ingratiate himself to the political leaders there. You say, but didn't he appeal to his Roman citizenship so that he would not be treated any any more heinously than he already had? Didn't Wasn't he upset that he was publicly humiliated in front of everyone? And so he said, no, you come out here and bring me out yourselves to show that you put me in here wrongly. Was that a mistake on Paul's part? Was that just self-promotion on Paul's part? No, because if you remember when we talked about that, it's from Acts chapter 16, when we talked about that, 
The only reason that Paul says, no, as Roman citizens, you're, you're not going to do that to us. You're not going to public because they had so shamed him that no one would listen to anything that he had to say. They would make assumptions that the gospel is connected to his shame. He says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow you to, to push people away from the gospel. If there's a legitimate issue in my life that you need to put me in prison for, put me there. If you're going to put me there just for preaching the gospel, put me there for preaching the gospel, but I'm not going to let you assign wrong shame to me so that no one will hear the gospel of Christ. He was never trying to seek from other people some kind of fame. He would tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves. For Jesus' sake. What would motivate someone to not pursue personal glory? I think the only thing that motivates us to pursue something other than personal glory is a glory that would exceed our own. That you are enamored with, you are pleased with, you are excited by a glory that is greater than yours, which would be that of Christ. That it is more satisfying to your soul to see people enamored with the person of Jesus and the perfections of Jesus and the majesty of Jesus that you keep pushing them to him. They come and want to praise you and you say, but Christ is Lord, I'm a slave. Why did Paul introduce most of his letters not as, I am the great and mighty apostle, but I am your slave I'm a slave of God. Not, that's not language that would ingratiate you to most audiences in the day. Slave, there's no value in being a slave, is there? That's what I am. I'm a slave of God. Everything is about Christ. Everything is about the Lord. Everything. Can I just point out something here? You say, yeah, you, we, we need to watch out for people like this. People who want something from us so they flatter us people who want something from us so they they want fortune and fame and wealth and you, you do understand that congregations are ready and willing to give it to their preachers there's something subtle inside of us that says we we like bragging on celebrity among us we we like feeding the egos of those among us as long as they feed our pride too. It's inside of all of us. What church do you go? Oh, I I go to that, that one. You know, the big one. You know, the influential one. You know, the one that has. And and we'll talk in those kinds of ways because that kind of fuels our desire to be publicly praised too. It's in everybody. It's in all of us. It was in Eve when she took the fruit. This is going to get me a glory I didn't know I could have. It's in all of us. And you notice, he he says in verse 6, we didn't seek this glory from men, either from you or others, even though, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. You notice apostles is plural. Who's he referring to? Does he think that Sylvanus and Timothy are are apostles? Not likely, But those men were what we call apostolic representatives when he would dispatch them to a church like he did Timothy to Ephesus and he would tell Timothy, you tell that church that I said this is what they're to do. 
He could do that and they would obey Timothy because Timothy was representing that apostolic authority. That's probably what he means here. That we came in with apostolic authority, but, but we didn't come telling you about our apostolic authority. And apostles did enjoy a very unique position of authority in the church. They were the most unique representatives of the Lord's word on earth after his ascension. They were the tools that God used to authoritatively reveal the details of the new covenant. Their ministry was accompanied by dramatic signs and wonders and miracles to confirm their position as an apostle. And it wouldn't have been wrong, actually, if they'd come in and said, we're apostles. We're apostles. That's one of the reasons you should listen to us is we're apostles. It wouldn't have been wrong to assert authority at the right time and in the right way. I mean, like he did when he's confronting the Judaizers who are wanting to redefine and add to the gospel, or he's confronting antinomian people who want to take away from the gospel, and he will confront them with apostolic authority. But here in Thessalonica, he didn't come using authority. He had God-given, authentic authority, but he did not come in praising himself as an authority in order to elevate himself in the eyes of the Thessalonians. He didn't want to gain a hearing just because of even God-given elevation. It wasn't necessary. They didn't need to bow to his gospel position. They needed to see his gospel example. And we need to be careful with this. Because we do love praise. We crave it at times. It makes up for many of the insecurities of our hearts. We have insecurities. Pastors have a lot of insecurities. And they know how to do certain subtle things within their congregation to make sure that you make them feel a little better about their insecurities. It comes naturally. You say, those terrible pastors. Right, we're humans. Like everyone in the room. And you do it too with your boss and you do it with your spouse and you'll even do it with your children. Your children do it with parents. It's dangerous because our hearts will love it, will crave it, and it'll draw more people to our image and we'll want that. And then we'll find ourselves driving people away from the very image that we really want them to follow. And that's Christ. Ministries that promote personalities end up distracting the world from what is actually more compelling, satisfying, sanctifying. And that's the purity and glory and honor of Jesus among us. Does a ministry, does a minister pursue self-promotion? That's the first motivation to examine. Something to always keep in mind. Secondly, we find in verse 7 another motivation, a second motivation that reveals the spiritual legitimacy of a ministry or a minister. Verse 7, does a ministry exercise care above authority? Does a ministry exercise care above authority? Look at verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. This is a profound statement. 
Now, primarily, this is about leadership. When we came in as leaders, how did we lead? How did we not lead? What kind of leadership did Paul exert when he entered the room? Now, there are some who would think that good leadership always requires walking into the room with commanding confidence, representing and stewarding an authority that has been entrusted firmly ensuring that your authority is understood. And once that authority is understood, then you can make progress with people. As long as you keep our relationship in mind, here's authority over you, then we can relate. Kindness can come once authority is acknowledged. You ever met anybody like that? Of course you have. Uh, usually those are people with really strong insecurities too that really want to be acknowledged as an authority. And then they're finally given authority and they think authority defines leadership. But we all need to run from people like that. Avoid people who live and think that way in church life. Now maybe, maybe that kind of life works in, in the military. You're always saluting, acknowledging authority. But even in those environments, leaders who love wielding authority are not going to likely be able to lead very many people or lead well or lead very long. And by the way, the church is no boot camp either, is it? This is not a military base. Sure, we all need to recognize that God has established lines of authority. There are. That's right. He, he defines authority. There's authority between us and God. He's the authority. We're not. There's even authority within marriage. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about a husband having headship over a wife. That's that's functional authority. Parenting has authority. Children, obey your parents. There's authority that's there. There's even authority in society. Christians are to obey the governing authorities because God put them there. But asserting authority is not the best means of growing people or glorifying God. That's not what we're supposed to do. We can recognize authority, but trying to assert it over people and force them to acknowledge it, that's, that's not how you convert the soul. Instead of asserting himself through authority, he exemplified himself through tender care. Do you think Paul knew his authority as an apostle? I do. And yet he walked into Thessalonica and Listen to this language he uses here. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That doesn't sound like a boot camp sergeant, does it? It sounds the very opposite. So how do you assess this motive? Two expressions of leadership here that I, I just want you to think about. Ask this question, are leaders personally dependent? And I want to show you why, where I get that idea. Are leaders personally dependent? The opening phrase of verse 7 is probably the most difficult phrase in the book to actually translate because in some of the oldest manuscripts, the Greek word for gentle that you have in the New American Standard Version, the word gentle, in the oldest manuscripts, and the majority of them, the Greek word is Napioi, which means babies. Babies. We prove to be babies among you. 
In some manuscripts, <clears throat> the Greek word is apioi, not napioi, but apioi. It's just the, the difference of one little Greek letter. And apioi is a rare word that means gentle. So which one is it? Is it napioi or apioi? And I just want you to know I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure that out. And by the end of it, I'm coming back and I'm saying, I, I think it really doesn't matter which way you go on that because it's really highlighting something similar. More than likely, I would come down and say the original word's probably the word for babies. We were babies among you. Why would he say that? Well, in contrast to the end of verse 6 about his authoritative position as apostles, we had authority as apostles, but, but how do we come? Not with authority, not with apostolic authority, but like people who don't have any authority. Who are people that don't have any authority in, in society? Children. Oh, children have rights. There's a bill of rights. Yeah. Exercise it. No, children, they don't have any authority. They can't vote. They can't drive. They think they can. But they can't. There's, there's no authority that's given there. Children are not self-sufficient. They're dependent on others. Children are not voices of authority. They're under authority. Children are not driving the home. They're dependent within the home. And that's how Paul showed up in Thessalonica. He was not self-sufficient. He was not commanding. He was not driving the Thessalonians to embrace the word that he preached. He was personally dependent on what he preached. He was under the authority of what he preached. He didn't come as the authority. He came under authority. He showed them what he expected of them in regard to their response to the gospel. He came under the authority of God and he showed them that like babies, like children, dependent. Everything he boldly, authoritatively authoritatively preached, he also was personally dependent upon. We came to you like we were children, not apostles. We came like kids, not commanders. That's a good assessment to consider when evaluating the legitimacy of a ministry. Do the preachers, do the elders, do the deacons, do the teachers, do the lay leaders show themselves to be like dependent children? Because guess what? We are. We are. Or do we show up and we're commanding generals? Let's get in line. Are the leaders in a growth group? Are they talking about the application of the sermon? Do the leaders in our church read their Bible on a regular basis? Do they pray? Just simple things like that. Do they pray? Do they read? Do they humble themselves before the word? Do they receive counsel or just give counsel? Do they ever ask forgiveness? Do they seek reconciliation? Do they feel like they need to be fed the word just as much as anyone else? Are they dependent on the spirit? It's kind of a childlike gentleness, isn't it? We came in like children. That's a gentle approach, not a harsh, authoritative, apostle-like approach. We don't need leaders who just walk in always with adult-like sufficiency. We need to see them equally dependent. Gentle, like a baby as a child as opposed to dominant. But there's another expression of leadership we find here also at the end of verse 7. We prove to be gentle, yes, but here's another question to ask. Are leaders tenderly concerned? Are they tenderly concerned? 
We came in like kids, like babies, not authorities. And then he switches a bit the analogy here and he says, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. If you want the picture, here it is. Here's how we came in and led. As a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. This is really an interesting image. Probably a little bit more involved than you might first think. It's not merely an expression of a gentle mother caring for her child or a gentle motherly kind of care. It's it's a fiercely devoted kind of care. The word for nursing mother is not the normal word for mother. This is a another term that is typically used for for a wet nurse. In the ancient world, it was common, especially at this time, for women to be employed as nurses to be used to feed infants of another family. And this is the word that would be used to describe that, a lactating mother. The emphasis here is not merely on the nursing woman, but a nursing woman who, notice the text carefully in verse 7, a nursing woman who tenderly cares for, and here's the emphasis, her own children. What do you think the difference would be between a paid nursing mother and a nursing mother who's caring for her own children? Yes, there's tenderness. Yes, there's warmth. Yes, there's embrace. But this is a mother nursing her own baby. She pays attention to every detail. She's concerned about every issue. Nothing escapes her her attention as she's nursing this child. This is not a job to this mother. There's deep personal devotion, specific concern, care, awareness. It is that kind of personal, loyal, family-like, detailed, tender, compassionate devotion that Paul said he had when he was with these Thessalonian believers. Instead of walking in with commanding allegiance, he, he asked questions about what was motivating and driving the challenges they were facing to the word so he could address them with the scripture. Rather than asserting himself, he likely wept with them. He pled with them. He prayed with them. He walked with them through the challenges. Now, primarily, this is speaking about the way that he preached to them and the atmosphere of his life that lived out that kind of message. There was nothing about his ministry that looked and smelled like just a simple professional performance. This was someone who cared about every single person hearing his voice, like they were a part of him, like a mother caring for her own children at the most intimate moment that's how he felt about that church that's dramatic to me because he'd only been there a very short amount of time that's not the only church he felt like that about i mean you you heard it just a few weeks ago when dalton was preaching about prayer he he said of the philippians It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. You're in my heart. He didn't preach to them so that he could write a book and sell it with his name on it. He probably stayed late 
arrived early, met with people, preached publicly, counseled privately at his church, in his home. Because mothers, mothers don't feed their own babies for a paycheck. A true shepherd never invests himself only so far as the people will pay him for it. His attitude toward the flock is more of that of a natural mother nursing her own children than a professional speaker investing himself for an hourly wage. It's not the idea here. You don't do this so you can make people think you you care. You actually do care. You care about the spiritual state of their soul. You, you preach so that they find themselves face to face with God. And friends, that's not just a personality trait for extroverts. You say, well, you know, if I find myself in ministry as an elder or a teacher, I, I really just love studying and teaching. Well, you can't just study and teach. You can't. You have to actually care. You can't just say, there's the Bible. Here's what it says. Move on. You know about that approach to counseling? What's the Bible say? What's your problem? Why are we still talking? That's one way you could do it. Right? You have a legitimate ministry where you have leaders who care about the people they're serving. So does a ministry pursue self-promotion? Does a ministry exercise care above authority? Last, does a ministry invest life service above lip service? It's the last motivation to examine. Does a ministry invest life service above lip service? It's verse 8. It's a simple verse, really profound in its application. Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become very dear to us. How do you assess this motive? Two ways. One, how do leaders feel about the flock? How do they feel about the flock? Well, how did Paul feel about this flock? Having so fond an affection for you. That's at the beginning. What's at the end of that verse? Because you had become very dear to us. That first phrase, fond affection. It's one word in the Greek and it's only used here in the New Testament and it's rarely used anywhere else in ancient Greek culture. It's hard to know exactly what it means, but it was found on a funeral inscription describing how parents were feeling about their deceased son. How do parents feel about a deceased child? They long for them. They long for them. They want to see them. They want want them back. One lexicographer noted of this word, the term is better taken as to feel oneself drawn to something with strong intensification of the feeling. He went on to say the rarity of this term selected in 1 Thessalonians 2.8 brings out the peculiar nature of the relation of the apostle to the community. This consists in a warm inward attachment The apostle is impelled by it to serve, not only in unconditional obedience to his commission, but also in heartfelt love for the community. Strong, fond affection. That's a very intense kind of inward feeling about a group of people that he had only known for a few weeks. At the end of the verse, he says, you had become very dear to us. The word dear there is the word Agapetoi. It comes from 
the Greek word agape. You were beloved. You had my most intense affections because you had my intentional love. You can't feel that way about anybody if you don't live with them. You've got to invite them into life, into home, into heart. They have to become a part of you. And where any ministry does not want personal investment, it will not have personal affection. And it works both ways. He not only could have that affection for them, that only works insofar as they had an equal affection for him and would allow that kind of life and service, right? It goes both ways. You know, I've, I've been told, I've been instructed, I've been encouraged by a number of people in my life as I've been learning about pastoral ministry and trying to grow in it. I've been told by many, many, many people, do not get too close to your congregation. I remember sitting in a meeting with a university president years and years ago, and he would say, listen, I'm going to give you pastors some advice. It's the advice that I take with all my employees, including the senior vice presidents of our, of our university. He says, do not get to know them as friends. Your friends, I've been told, need to be the people outside your church, not inside. Why? They're going to hurt you. They're going to know too much about you. They're going to betray you. And you know what's true about that? It happens. It, it does. It does. It might be good professional wisdom if you just want a well-oiled organizational machine. Maybe. It's just not how Paul served the people that he ministered to. Professional distance doesn't breed significant discipleship, really. What did he feel about him? He had strong affection for them. I mean, how many ways can he say it? So the second question to ask in assessing this idea of does a ministry invest life service above lip services, what do the leaders invest in the flock? What do they invest in the flock? We, we loved you so much, it pleased us. It was our desire. We were well pleased, he says, to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. And the word lives is the word for soul. It's not just the way we live, it's the depths of who we are that expresses itself in how we live. Our own soul was invested in you. Yes, we preach, yes, we taught. It's what defined us, it's who we are. We're we're preachers and teachers of the word of God. But as we do that, we're also investing in you, our very soul. He didn't just come on Sundays. He was with them in the week. They were with him. He was with them. They talked about the intersection of truth and life and scripture and the soul. They would go and talk to him about the details of the hardest issues of their life and he would work with them through that patiently. Investing himself. I I was raised in a a culture in Texas where... Church, church is what you did on Sunday and you, you just did not get real close to people. You, you would do a lot of activities together and those were enjoyable, but you just didn't get involved in people's lives. I mean, I, I was always wondering why all the deacons gathered together to talk about everybody bad while smoking behind the church. <laughs> and I was told, hey, that's none of your business. I'm like, I was just curious. You don't go there. 
Church discipline wasn't a thing. You didn't talk about those kinds of things. You didn't talk about personal matters. It bred a surface level kind of hospitality and kindness. Well, you could be known as a hospitable place. But there's sin and it's unchecked and people are living it and we kind of know about it, but we're not saying anything. We're not trying to help them get out of it. We're not trying to show them redemption in Christ. We're not trying to help them live in the, the joy of holiness. You know, this week I was listening to a popular podcast that had detailed the rise and fall of a large evangelical church. And now the very news organization that's producing the podcast that was investigating the church and publishing the expose had to come out and admit that they had a culture in the news organization that had massive problems of sexual harassment. And they were coming out to acknowledge that. And what struck me as I listened to it is that the host and the guest of the podcast were decrying how the failed church and even the exposed news organization had appealed, they had made appeals to their respective members or employees to see the organization like a family. View it like a family, because family deals with family problems. And we don't need to go other places and deal with that. And we don't need to go outside the organization. We just need to deal with it inwardly as a family. And the host even was quoting someone that had been highlighted in previous episodes of how this individual said, listen, if I ever hear again, and I tell people when I'm, I'm hiring them for jobs, if any organization says, hey, view us like a family, you run from that group as fast as you can. And the host and the guests were basically saying that as well, that listen, where you work and the church you go to doesn't need to, you don't need to talk about family because that's, that, that hides problems. And I thought, do you know how dangerous that is? Because the Bible uses family language all over it and says we are to be a family. But, you know, there's a difference between the Godfather, that kind of family, <laughs> mafia family, who is trying to hide things, and a real family that knows each other and cares about what's going on and wants to relate in the most personal ways, Right? So if you're gonna if you're gonna treat church like no don't call me family here you know we we have a a distance now at the same time family doesn't hide problems family real family spiritual family deals with problems and if there's someone in our midst guilty of breaking the law harming another person a child or sexual harassment there's legal issues there and a family would say you know what probably the best thing to do for their reformation is to turn them over. Not to hide it, not to deal with it internally, not to put up with it, but let's deal with it so that there might be real repentance and exposure. So in your growth group, if you just talk about the content of the sermon and not its application, you start building an environment where it doesn't feel like family and it doesn't feel personal and it's not investing life service, just kind of lip service. We just talk about it. And if we don't respond to truth when it pricks our conscience and convictions, we start guarding our heart from the kind of investment and affection that would actually grow you as a person in Christ. The kind of Christian living we're considering in a spiritually legitimate ministry is one where we're actually living out Christianity together and loving 
living out Christianity together. It's a matter of getting down to the issues of our hearts and what demands a significant level of God-centered devotion and loyalty and affection and love and involvement with one another. And listen, I understand, not everybody's going to be on the same level of relationship and friendship and depth with every single individual in the church. I mean, just look around. It'd be hard to have that kind of depth with everybody. But do you, do you trust the body? Are you getting to know them well enough that you could say, but if I had a need, I know that the members of this church would come around. If I had a spiritual need and I was struggling with sin, they're not going to just outright condemn me. They're going to come alongside and try to help me through this. They're going to pray with me. They're going to confront me. They're going to walk with me. They're not going to leave me. Because we're devoted to each other. That's hard. And we fail in that in so many ways. I do. But we don't have a spiritually legitimate church where the gospel's not actually shaping how we feel, how we think, how we live, but just what we listen to. There's got to be more than lip service, life service. Remember what we learned a few months ago out of Hebrews 13, 7? That said, uh, you, you need to look at your leaders. You need to think about your leaders. Remember that text? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. That's what Paul's talking about here. We have to have leaders whose lives can be examined and followed. We have to have a church who loves that and wants that and desires that, supports that, even down to the motivations of why we serve. Do we pursue self-promotion? Do we exercise care above authority? Do we invest life service beyond lip service? Let's pray together and let's ask God to help us. We want that kind of ministry, don't we? Father, just reading through these verses is so compellingly convicting to me. It's also encouraging at the same time because I know there's a group of people here and they're striving for this. We're so imperfect in how we apply it. So imperfect. But we want this. We know the world is not going to achieve this. They feed themselves on poor motivations. Lord, we want to be a community of people who really care for the depth of spiritual maturity among us and spiritual concerns so that we have a a ministry that when you look at us, Lord, you find us to be true and legitimate, spiritually effective. We, We really don't care what Christian media thinks We really are not concerned about evaluating everybody else out there in the culture or other ministries. We don't know those. We don't live among them. We don't know them. But we live here. We know each other. So help us to cultivate with gentleness and care, concern, the spiritual well-being of one another. And draw to this place those who want that same thing. 
And they want to see the glory of Christ among us. They want to see the image of your son, Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not give his life on the cross as a substitute for us so that we would stay the same, that we would live for ourselves. So help us, help us to pursue the image of Jesus among us. And I pray for those who do not know the Lord in salvation, that you would bring a conviction to their heart about the way they have been living their life, the motivations of their own heart, what they have been pursuing, and show them there's a greater glory, a glory in Christ, a greater joy, more than the glory of this culture. It is the glory found in the person of Jesus. And seeking his magnification will bring deeper, longer lasting satisfaction than any other pursuit. Bring such conviction by your spirit. We know that no one would pursue this kind of life unless they were motivated by the lordship of Christ. So help us all to bow under that lordship and experience this kind of legitimate ministry. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.